friends, welcome to another episode of Changing Company. I'm excited to introduce you today to my friend Josh Bishop. And um, today we're going to talk about the benefits of being generous and a plethora of other topics. And I hope you just find some of these very concrete examples helpful to, to reflect in ways in which you can find more joy within your own life. So I hope you find this helpful and I look forward to hearing your feedback. back everyone to another episode of Changing Company. I'm here today with Josh Bishop. Welcome Josh. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, give us a little bit of background. Uh, who are you? What do you do? My name's Joshua Bishop. Uh, I do a lot of things. I'm a licensed social worker, uh, which means I do a lot of things. Uh, I've got a I work at a church as a counselor and a director of congregational care. So that's weddings, funerals, counseling, visiting people in the hospital, all that kind of stuff. I've got a private practice. Um, I call it the Center for Trauma Recovery and Counseling. So I do a lot of work with folk, folks with PTSD and trauma and that kind of thing in their background. And uh, I uh, teach classes uh, at a couple universities around here in social work. And I'm finishing up a PhD this year also in social work. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize you teach classes. What is your, what is your PhD in? Um, it's uh, it, it's from Michigan State. It's social work and uh, with a cognate in public health. And my research is around generosity and child welfare. And I also research trauma education. Generosity and child welfare. Yeah. What does that mean? So I'm studying people who are generous to vulnerable children. And I am, uh, I'm trying to join a group of researchers who study the benefits of being generous. Um, so most of the science out there tends to show that uh, being a generous person is good for your well-being. So it makes you physically healthier, healthier it makes you happier, gives you a greater sense of life satisfaction and self-esteem and self-mastery, all these kinds of concepts that have to do with well-being. Um, being a generous person is, is good for you. There's this uh, quote the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts quotes Jesus as saying, um, it's better to give than to receive. And that's not in the Gospels anywhere. Jesus doesn't say that. And there's no story where Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And Paul, who's a person who never met Jesus, quotes him as saying, it's better to give than to receive. Uh, and I'm intrigued by that idea. Like, is it actually better to give than it is to receive? So uh, as I've set out on my research path, I've been looking at what if we study that scientifically, is it actually better to give than it is to receive? So that's my, my dissertation applies. When you do a dissertation, you have to build on the foundation of some other group of research, but you have to go in a very specific direction that nobody else has done. So no, at this point, nobody else has looked at what happens to you when you're generous to children who are at risk of entering the child welfare system. So that's me. That's what, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> What have you found so far? What has been the, maybe even some of the shocking or things you didn't expect to find? Yeah, well, I haven't uh, actually started collecting data. Okay. I'll do that in a couple months. So far, what I've done is study what everybody who's come before me has said. So uh, I've looked at all of the literature about volunteerism and how that impacts your well-being. And there's a good amount out there. Um, I've done some presentations on that. Uh, 
and it's this like unanimous voice. Everyone who's looked at does volunteering uh, increase your well-being? They said yes, and they've looked at it in a whole bunch of different ways. They've looked at how motivation affects it. They've looked at uh, is there is there a point when too much volunteering is actually bad for you? It's called pathological uh, generosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it does seem that being generous is good for you, but to a point. Um, and at some point, it starts to be bad for you to give away too much, uh, or to become off balance, or that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a a, a lot of it's one of the problems with the literature, if you care about this, is that people haven't measured generosity the same. They haven't measured well-being the same. So there's all this. There's all these studies that show that generosity or volunteerism are uh, impacts your well-being, but uh, they didn't study well-being the same. So it's hard to compare them to one another. Um, so it's this this like really um, eclectic body of work that people have done to show that this exists. But it's a it's a it's a emerging science at this point, so it needs more people to study it. So I was like, I'll do that. I'll join in. Interesting. So, how do you measure it then? Um, it depends which you know. So there's there's three main types of generosity. One is giving money. Another is giving time in some way, which is where volunteering fits in to that. Um, and then there's a, there's uh, sort of getting involved in in causes as well. And there's lots of little things like uh, blood donation and helping your neighbor and letting your mom borrow your car or those kinds of informal things. So people have looked at generosity in in a variety of ways. The biggest one has to do with volunteering and giving money. And then, but people have looked at it, you know, in different ways. Um, Just do you volunteer or don't you? So in some some of the studies, having the role of, of being a volunteer is actually the thing that matters. In some of the other studies, uh, it matters how much you volunteer, how many hours per week or how many hours per year. Um, in some studies, it just matters do you give or don't you give. In other studies, it depends on how much you give. So uh, there's all this nuance to it, um, whether whether we're looking at uh, people, some people have talked about a generous identity. And so uh, they've looked at, do people consider themselves to be a generous person? And is that actually the thing that increases your well-being? So it's not actually the generous activity or the generous behavior that's good for you. It's identifying yourself as a generous person that's good for you. Um, other people have found that it actually does depend on whether you're very generous or not. So the kind of degree of generosity. So not the act of being generous itself, but how you interpret yourself from doing the act. Yeah, that's at least like, I would say that's like a third of the researchers have looked at this thing called role identity theory, which goes beyond uh, just generosity. But as people take on identities of all the different things that they do, all the different roles that they play, um, whether that's a familial identity, you know, parent or child or sibling or whatever, or a friend, or if it has to do with career, the people are, we're all kind of taking on these different roles. And if, if generous identity or the role of volunteer is one of your sort of, I call it um, like an identity stew. So you're, you're who you are, who you, how you have a concept of yourself is like this big stew. It has a whole bunch of different ingredients, some good and some not good. And they all mix together and they blend to form their own flavor. Um, when they're all put together. But anyway, in this theory, that it, 
you know, so having this generous identity is, you know, the potatoes of the stew and it makes the stew good. (laughs) Before we come back to the child welfare, I'm curious on this notion of what about on the extremes? Because you said too much generosity could actually potentially negatively impact your health. There is a balance. So what about for the, we're, we're, we're talking about helping your neighbor. What about in the instance of like, I'm packing my bags and moving to say a third world country and fighting, um, starvation and poverty how does that tie in yeah well, is, is that does that pass the too much threshold or? well i i don't know no, no one has defined yet uh you know a, a universal human threshold for generosity um one of the things i'm studying with this child welfare piece is I'm, I'm studying people who are taking vulnerable kids into their home so it's not anymore i volunteer two hours a week it's this child lives with me all day every day so that is one of the things i'm curious about is um the balance between uh, having taking on too much responsibility or taking on too much stress or being exposed to too much uh, trauma or abuse or, you know, in your case, like if you're the example you're giving, if you move to some famine stricken place, like you're going to see a lot of stuff that that is going to be hard for your brain to process. And that's not, that can be unhealthy for sure. So it, it sort of depends on, on a person uh, and it also sort of just depends on, you know, these kind of like energy levels. Some people get a lot of energy from being around those who are hurting. And so there is something coming back to them. Other people get burnt out. Um, so you know, people like to talk about balance and sort of healthy boundaries and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, I, I would guess that it's different for different people. But that's what I am. I am studying one of the extremes. So not just... I volunteer an hour a week at my kid's school, mm-hmm. but I've got a child living with me. So the, the, the first person who ever sort of looked at this is the guy who coined the phrase helpers high. You've probably heard that before mm-hmm. that like doing good things makes you feel good. Well, feeling good is good for you. And, that, and <laughs> yeah. so that's part of how it, doing a good thing increases your well-being. And um, so part of it is like how, how much of that how much of that sort of reward do you get from being generous? There is, there is a, there is like a, a group of folks who argue about um, altruism. So altruism is this idea that you, you sacrifice yourself for the benefit of somebody else and you get nothing in return. And then there's other researchers who don't care about that at all. Who cares if you get something in return? And in fact, the research shows that you get something in return, whether you want to or not, you're, you, you get satisfaction in return or you get, you get this helper's high in return. Um, so, and I sit, I sit in more in that school where I, I don't, I, I think the world is a better place when people are compassionate and generous because maybe it is better to give than to receive. So I can share with you and it benefits you, but share, the act of sharing with you also benefits me. And didn't that create a better world when both of us are feeling better in that moment, uh, when both of us have more of what we need in that moment? You got my brain spinning here. Um, there's about 15 questions I want to ask you. Um, what about this idea? So, so right, right now on this specific idea, are you, are you are you tying more into this of not necessarily what you're doing, but why you're doing it? Is that is that a component when you're saying, okay, even if you are being altruistic, um, is, is there a point of if you are more altruistic, it's a healthier way to engage it? with your helpers high or is it, or is that maybe a null and void point? I'm not sure, you know, and it, 
it probably depends on what I'm talking about is these larger theories and then uh, findings from studies. So it, it's never looking at like one individual and how that individual works. It's in general, how do people work, which just means that all of us, if we're thinking about this, you can take what works in general and then think about your own self and your own kind of balance and boundaries and how that would work for you. A lot of us who work in the helping fields, we're not good at finding the balance and we, we get sucked into what would be called pathological generosity. And we are just essentially, you know, leaking, our, the energy is leaking out of us and not being replenished at the same, at the same pace. We all, we all need folks in our life who are going to reflect that back to us and help us to see when that's happening. With my work, even with like the Giving Tree program, I am trying to get people to donate one hour once a month. And I often fail to get people to show up on that level. And, and, and the notion is we're too busy. And then you start looking at all this research that even like uh, the, 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 in, in the government, the Labor Bureau and Statistics will put out these reports of like, here's the average of we spend 3.8 hours a day looking at social media, watching TV, watching Netflix, where all these things that are not actually attributed to, say, work or productivity. And I look at that and I say, okay, we on average waste, let's call it four hours a day glued to TVs or cell phones, and yet we call ourselves busy. And I'm not saying we aren't busy. It's just, are we necessarily busy doing the most beneficial things to our lives? And I think what's What's intriguing me about what you're talking about is I always want to make this argument to say that helping and serving and volunteering might be more beneficial than staring at Facebook or Instagram for an hour. It might bring more joy into your lives. It might open up more barriers. We might stop fighting politics over social media. But is there this, this level of can you equip yourself or train yourself to be able to handle higher levels of volunteering to where... I might have to acknowledge this to some person, volunteering an hour a month might be too much for them. That might, not too much, but that might be a lot in their mind versus somebody who is going to adopt a child and integrate that role permanently. Yeah, so my, my theory of how people work and, and especially how they change is that we all do, in each, in each moment, we are all doing what we think will make our lives better. And so the process of change or growth is uh, part of it is changing the, what you believe about what will make your life better. So that's that, and that is where my my research is, where I find motivation for my own research is that I think I think that this quote "it is better to give than to receive" is true, uh, and I, I want people I want to draw attention to that, and I want it to be okay for for all of us to say I volunteer because it makes my life better, because imagine a world where everybody would do that. Well, we'd have a world full of compassionate, sharing, giving people, and we'd have a world full of people who are feeling good about themselves. And I have no problem with people feeling good about themselves. <laughs> so that's where I have a problem with this idea of altruism, that it should kind of hurt you. You should have to sacrifice something for somebody else, um, when I don't think that's how the world works. You do, you do sacrifice for other people, but it doesn't hurt you. It actually it, 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 it helps you. And if you're doing it in such a way that it does hurt you, then you should probably stop doing that. So to answer your question, if it is too hard for somebody to volunteer one hour a month, then they shouldn't do it. Um, but if there's a way that they can reorganize their life or even just a way to reorganize how they perceive their life, like you're talking about 
are people busy or do they just feel busy? Um, to reorganize their life about what they believe is, will make their life better. Uh, that's the question I'm asking, and I'm trying to put some science to the idea that, yeah, it does make your life better, and uh, I hope that that encourages people to try it. You know, if, so if you're, in a, if you're in a role where you're trying to get people to volunteer, the hardest part is getting them there the first time. Once they experience it, they, they want yeah. to come back, right? So I'm trying to help with that, I, you know, sort of that motivation or inspiration side of it. I want people to believe that it will make their life better when they volunteer. So that's why I reject the idea that you're, you're not trying to get people to give up something to care about other people. If you tell somebody, hey, I, know, I want you to do this activity, it will help somebody else, but it will make your life worse. No one's going to sign up for that. <laughs> and, it's, and, and, and it's so counterintuitive then because actually it will actually make their life better. So it's, it, there's this kind of cycle where love grows in the world versus sort of love shrinking in the world. And, and um, love brings more love, brings more love, brings more love. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm coming from. That's kind of the, the background of why I care about this kind of research and what I, what I think is true about people. Um, and I want to help people see that their life can be better if they want other people's lives to be better. Mm. And I, and I, and I want to just repeat this out loud. You, you reference, you're not trying to get people to give up something. You're trying to help them see a greater, let's say gain in their life that could come from this type of work. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in like quality of life. That's the thing I'm interested in. So when I say it will make your life better, like I'm saying you will enjoy your, like you will, you will have this higher quality of life. If you give away your money, you don't have the money anymore. So you did lose something there, but you gained some sense of higher quality of life. And that's what I'm interested in. Interesting. And now two, two more questions I have on this topic. One is, how do you scientifically prove that, say, generosity is going to increase your quality of life? Well, you can't scientifically prove anything. You can gather evidence that gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, you know, the way statistics works, works is based on probability. So what you're doing is you're gaining, gathering enough evidence with enough strength behind it that the chances that it's true are high. Mm. Um, but science never proves anything, especially in social science. You just get closer and closer to it being true, but you never get all the way there. And that's partially because the world is really complex. So, you know, someone could be listening to this and say, oh, it's going to make my life better if I volunteer. They go volunteer somewhere and have a terrible experience. And then they say, it's not true. Well, I say, it wasn't true in that moment. For sure, that's, that's accurate. But is it true in general? That's kind of more of what social science is after. Yeah. Because that's what are you volunteering? Why did you volunteering? What day? How? Sure. What? What do you? What is even your reason behind what were you expecting? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's complex. It talking is. about a million variables and trying to yeah. formulate a generalization out of it. Right. And in, in in science, especially social science, you're trying to limit the impact of all the vari the the infinite amount of variables. You try to in, you try to limit the impact of those in different ways with different techniques to do that. But you can never completely do that. You know. Science, social science works the same way that political polls work, where it, it, you can get close, you know, you can get close, but they're not, they're gonna, it's not going to be, you're never going to prove anything. Yeah. Why study generosity with, with kids going into the welfare system? Uh, because I think that uh, 
the world depends on children in every way. And what I mean is that the, 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 ex the human experience depends on children. And children are the way that we can measure how we're doing in society. If your children are doing well, then your society is doing well. And if your children are not, then you are not as a society doing well. So if I use that measurement, um, our, in the U.S., our society is not doing very well because we have more than half a million kids in foster care at any given time. Foster care is an improvement on uh, the way we cared for vulnerable kids in the past, but it's not helpful for the most part. Uh, the outcomes aren't very good for those. For anyone who goes into foster care, the outcomes are not good. All kinds of outcomes in, in life. Um, as soon as you get in foster care, your chances of living a good life aren't, they, they go down. Uh, there's a thing called adverse childhood experiences. Have you heard of this before? Mm -hmm. There's a big study years ago uh, where uh, uh, folks realized uh, that having an adverse childhood experience, so Anything from experiencing abuse to witnessing domestic violence to having a parent with a mental illness uh, to living in poverty or experiencing neglect as a child impacts your health for the rest of your life. Um, so people who experience a, a higher level of these adverse childhood experiences, uh, they die younger, generally. Uh, they, have, they have more health problems, they have more mental health problems, they're less successful in life. So... What that means is that our experience as a child, as we all know, just it just shapes the trajectory of our future. So why do I care about children? It's because I care about humans, and the most uh, vulnerable time of life, the most glorious time of life is childhood. And, and I want to encourage our society to care better for children. That's why. <laughs> Probably because I think it's the most important thing we can do. clinical side of my work I'm working in the intervention side something happened to you now I want to help you try to heal from that yeah but in my research work I'm working on the prevention side how can we prevent this stuff from happening in the first place because it really can have consequences that last your whole life you know a, a child who is abused at a young as a child a person who's abused as a child has to deal with the consequences of that one moment in time the rest of their life so for me I I want to work, I love working on the intervention side and helping people work through their trauma, but I, I also would like to not ever have to do that. I would rather that nobody was traumatized yeah. in the first place. So I, that, this is me putting effort on both sides of the coin. Which is, and I don't want to blow smoke up your butt, but this is, this is incredible because of the basis. It, what, what I see in a lot of our culture is we don't actually want to fix anything. If I have a headache, give me a pill. I don't want to stop and ask why I have the headache. Am I dehydrated? Am I stressed? Am I tired? Did I, you know, did something go wrong in my day? Right? It's no. There's a pill for that. I can fix that quickly. Don't burden me with that. And and I and I metaphorically speak of that of, of of the way we engage much of our lives. We don't want to look at root causes. But I think even in my own personality, I catch myself doing this. I will swing the, the, the pendulum from going, you know, to, okay, well, forget, for, forget the symptoms. Let's focus solely on the root causes and prevent it. But then you negate that the symptoms are still happening. So this is, 
to me at least, it's, it's a beautiful balance between you're acknowledging that, okay, these are real issues that I'm experiencing in my job every single day, but there is also a way to address these and, and they don't have to be separate conversations, right? Yeah, yeah. It, some people are more designed or, or get more energy from the intervention versus the prevention side, or some people are prevention, not intervention. And I just find some energy in both. I, I don't want to, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm a little bit in my life, I'm addicted to meaning, like purpose. I, I, I want to feel like I matter, my life matters. Mm. And so this is my way of doing that, of, of looking at sort of both sides of this coin and working in it in both ways. At least I know you're human now. <laughs> Found a fault in you after all. He longs for meaning. Um, so, one of the most profound things you said to me the other day was, uh, you used the metaphor of a radio dial when it comes to emotions. Can you just explain what you were talking about and why? Yeah, so uh, the, the theory I work off of is that our emotions... Are, there's like a master volume knob for your emotions. And you can't pick and choose which emotions you want to feel and which ones you don't. So a lot of people go through bad times, hard things, challenges, and they feel bad, so they turn their emotions off. Uh, which means they also, they don't get the spectrum of emotions. They, they turn the whole, the, the master volume goes down on all their emotions all at the same time. So we don't have, I'm using this metaphor of, volume or, or audio or whatever. We don't have an individual volume knob for each emotion. I think we just have one general control of it. And so, and we're always working to deal with our emotions. We all want to feel good. We're all, all the time. We're all working to, to be okay. And when we're not okay, sometimes the easiest thing to do is just to dull or numb or turn down all the emotions at once, which, you know, in, in that metaphor, I think it's easy to to see how that's not a healthy thing. To, that's not like a, a way of life that we want, not any of us want to have. Uh, that's but, part of our 3.8 hours a day. That's part of our Netflix or social media or even, obviously your crutches can be booze, volunteering, food, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, instead of, instead of uh, allowing ourselves to feel what we feel, we, we try to avoid our own feelings. And as long as you avoid feeling something that you're feeling, it sticks with you. It, it, I mean, I would say it haunts you. A feel, a, an emotion will haunt you until you let yourself feel it. Take, take me further down that road. Because again, I'm, I'm thinking of a culture of, of avoidance. I'm thinking of a culture that is quicker to numb out than to engage, engage a difficult conversation because we, we don't like to do hard things. We don't like to be vulnerable. We certainly don't want to go down the road of things like empathy because now we're tying back into all those other issues. So shame, guilt, anger, resentment, whatever it is, let me suppress that and get it out of the way. Yeah. Uh, we talk about getting over things. Uh, and uh, I don't think that that's possible. I think you can only get through things. So there's, there's this old children's song or poem or book my kids have it as a book i learned it as like a repeat after me kind of song it's called going on a bear hunt have you heard of this no so it's like uh it goes something like we're going on a bear hunt we're going to catch a big one we're not scared and then uh the different verses of the song are these uh, hurdles and barriers and things that get in the way so it'll be like oh no a forest a deep dark forest and the the line that keeps repeating is can't go over it 
can't go under it, got to go through it. And then uh, it, depending on the, the barrier, there's this like, so the forest is like stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. Get through the forest, start from the beginning and going on a bear hunt, going to catch a big one. We're not scared. Oh no, a river, a fast, cold river. Can't go over it. Can't go around it. Got to go through it. And to me, that's like the story of the human experience. You can spend your life on the banks of the river, too afraid to feel it, to go through it. But then you never, you never get to the other side. Or you just go through it. And by go through it, I, I literally mean just feel, just allow yourself to feel the emotion, which we do in our bodies. You don't feel your emotions you know, in your sort of metaphorical heart or even in your brain. You feel your emotions in your body. So like right now, if you were angry, I could say to you, where in your body do you feel your anger? We all, a lot of us feel our, our emotions in our torso, you know, yeah. like, in, like in your like literal heart or in your gut. Sometimes it's in our shoulders or in our face. Some people feel things in their hands. But uh, when you actually get in touch with what you're feeling, you can put it in your body. You can see where your body is experiencing it. And another way of saying that would be like if, if, you were, if we were in a situation where you were feeling scared, I would say, how do you know you're feeling scared? What is the sensation that you have that lets you become aware of the fact that you're, you're experiencing fear? It wouldn't just be a thought you have in your brain. It would be some sort of sensation that you would have in your physical body. But we are very afraid of letting our bodies feel our emotions because our emotions are powerful. They are often unpleasant. It's not a, it's not a, pleasant experience to feel fear or anger or sadness uh, or shame or this is not it's not a pleasant experience to have to feel those but i think they stick in our body literally in the cells of our body until we, we get them out in some way it's really interesting now you've got me reflecting on ways and what right you know when you try because you're right right like often if if i'm upset i don't feel that like in my brain i feel that in my gut Right. Yeah. Or that like anxiety for walking on a stage. Right. It's always the butterflies or whatever, or the shaking and the, the, the cold, sweaty hands. Right. Um, yeah. How else would you know you were nervous? Yeah. Those are that that is you being nervous. There's not some other. We talk about emotions as if they are different from our bodies or separate yeah. from our bodies, but they really aren't. You, you, you really experience the whole world, including your emotion through your body. So. As a trauma therapist, what would be, and, and, and it's hard, I know everything's unique to everybody, but what would be some of the suggestions or advice even that you would have for those of us who are standing on the riverbank looking at a raging class five rapid saying, I don't know how to swim. I can't cross this river. I would say... Find somebody who can help you dip your toe in. Um, another analogy I use is a hot tub. So uh, many of us find a hot tub like a pleasurable experience, except nobody cannonballs into one. If you were to jump into a hot tub, for a, for a few seconds you would think your skin was melting off, right, if it's a really hot hot tub. Everybody kind of slowly gets in to the hot tub until their body becomes sort of essentially desensitized to the feeling and and then it can be pleasant and emotions are the same if you if you are to, if, if you were to jump into the deep end of the emotions that are tied to your trauma that will overwhelm you certainly which is why 
people who've experienced trauma are either hypervigilant or highly avoidant of the memory of the feelings because it's very unpleasant. So in, in therapy, at least what I do is I help people dip their toe into the, into the hot tub of their feelings and then take it back out. That's, that's good enough for now. And then the next time you can maybe go up to your ankle and then you take it back out and you still, you know, it's not something you want to jump into. It's something you want to ease your way into. And your body and your brain will become essentially desensitized to those feelings. I, sometimes I talk about it as you will, in therapy, you will get bored with your trauma memories. That's what we're going to try to do. Right now, they're the most um, exciting in a negative way memory that you have. They're the most stimulating memory that you have. And um, I want to help you feel bored about them. Well, and you said something that's really sticking with me. That's good enough for now. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking even in relation to like, why does a diet fail, right? Because you go from living off of cheeseburgers and Mountain Dew to I'm going to become a vegan tomorrow. I'm going to exercise six days a week and do yoga for three hours a day. And then we're always shocked when by Tuesday the diet has failed. And I think there's something really beautiful in what really beautiful in what you're saying is just this it's okay to just start eating a piece of broccoli and then tomorrow add in a cucumber slice whatever i mean what what do you suggest for us when we get caught up in our head in that shame and guilt of i'm not processing this quick enough i'm not doing enough you know in 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 a therapy session there's there's no such thing as not enough uh, we are haunted with this idea that we're not, we're not enough or we're not doing enough or we're not good enough. And uh, in therapy, that's not, there, there's no such thing as that. And part of it is just, is part of the therapeutic process is learning that um, because we carry those messages so heavily in our identity. It's figuring out, you know, where those ideas come from and why they're there. Uh, a lot of the time, there's two main questions that really help people to experience their own thoughts and feelings. One of them is, um, is it realistic? So if you have a thought that keeps on moving through your head over and over and over again, you ask yourself, is that realistic? Meaning, is it accurate? Is it, is it true to reality? Uh, and you ask yourself, what evidence do I have that this thought that I keep having is true? Uh, write that down. Try to figure that out. And then the second question is, is it helpful? Does thinking this thought over and over again make my life better? Write down the ways that it does or that it doesn't. Uh, but those two questions help to open up our thinking. To uh, it, So it gives us a new perspective on our thinking. Because we, we all get stuck in these thought cycles, especially if it comes to, when it comes to guilt and humiliation and shame um, and trauma. We, we, uh, we kind of narrate the story back to ourselves with the same phrase over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And those phrases are the ones that we need to look at and say, is that realistic? How do you know? What's the evidence you have that it's true? And then is it helpful? Is it making your life better to think that thought? Is there another thought you could think that would make your life better? E even just for folks who are trying to dip their toe into the river, I think it's helpful to hear other stories and other perspectives um, that, that make it a little bit safer, a little bit more comfortable um, to do so. And um, so, so for starters, where you're you're out of Grand Rapids, yep. 
So um, where could either people get in touch with you if they're looking to put their toe in the water or um, what suggestions would you have for folks who are not from Grand Rapids um, that they might get connected and to resources that could help them? Yeah, oh, uh, to connect with me, you can email me, uh, joshdbishop at gmail. Okay, we'll put that in the cliff notes. Okay, great, sounds good. Uh, send me an email. Um, but what I say to people is, who have experienced abuse or trauma or assault is that you didn't get to your situation alone, meaning somebody did something to you that got you to where you are. And you also cannot get out of your situation alone. Now you need somebody to help. Somebody helped you in, somebody hurt you in, I would say, and now you need someone to help you out. Um, so, so, you know, don't buy into the pick up yourself by your own bootstraps idea. Um, reach out and get, get the help that you need as soon as you can. It's, it's worth your time, it's worth your money, it's worth the rest of your life. So that's what I would say to people. That's awesome. Josh, thank you. Thank yeah. you for doing this. No problem. Glad to be here. My pleasure.